Ecclesiastes chapter 7. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. It just so happens that um, 35 years ago this weekend was the first time I ever heard the name Jim Valvano. Because I was 11 and I was living in Houston, my hometown. And it was this weekend, 35 years ago, that the University of Houston Cougars was playing for the championship against the NC State Wolfpack, of whom Jim Valvano was the coach. And if you remember that, like I remember that, it was a hard day for people in Houston. Because <laughs> Houston up was a bunch, up by a bunch. And Guy Lewis, the coach of the Cougars, had his signature handkerchief, and he began to sweat. And that's because... In the final second of the game, by an alley-oop, the Wolfpack throw up a beauty over Hakeem Olajuwon, and the Wolfpack win in the last second. And it's inevitable, if you've seen any basketball histories or annals, that there is at least one moment dedicated to the moment in which Jim Valvano takes the floor in that iconic moment of astonishment that he can't believe they won. That was 35 years ago this weekend. Fast forward 10 years later, Jim Valvano has all eyes on him again. He's on a show sponsored by ESPN, and he's come to receive the Arthur Ashe Achievement Award. The difference this time in that in receiving the award, Jim Valvano is diagnosed with terminal cancer, and what he doesn't know is that he has six weeks before he'll die. And there... Receiving the award, he gives thanks, goes on for about 10 minutes, and about 10 minutes in, you see him pause for just a moment, and he looks into the teleprompter, and he notices that on the teleprompter, there's something blinking, a message, 30 seconds. In other words, wrap it up, man, we've got to go to commercial. You have 30 seconds to wrap up your thanks and appreciation. And in that moment, you know what Jim Valvano does? He pauses, he smirks, and he says these words. I want to get it right. They got this screen up there flashing 30 seconds, like I care about that screen. I got tumors all over my body, and I'm worried about some guy in the back there saying to me, 30 seconds. You got to imagine the producer in that moment. He's got advertisers and a network bearing down on him to cut to a commercial for 30 seconds that's going to cost more than that guy will make in 10 years, probably. And yet he doesn't want to go down in history known as the guy that dissolved to black on the dying, cherished basketball coach. But in a moment like that, Jim Valvano shows his hand. He sees the world differently. 
He's come into a little bit of learning. Now, something that in another scenario might seem very important, like I've got to wrap it up in 30 seconds, now feels utterly ridiculous. He has new eyes and he sees a new truth because he's in a dance with death. And in that moment, he is the envy of no one and of everyone. Because no one would want to sign up for the dance of death that he finds himself in. And yet, how many of us wouldn't want to kill at least to be liberated from all of the things that we're afraid of that we ought not to be afraid of, like worrying if we're going to finish within 30 seconds? He saw like he hadn't seen before. He saw into truth. Long before Jimmy Valvano, though, let death help him see life differently. There was a preacher who either was Solomon or knew King Solomon. We only know him as the preacher. And he liked to say all kinds of weird stuff, all kinds of counterintuitive stuff in the book that you and I might know as the book of Ecclesiastes. And in that book, which you just heard an excerpt from that Kim read, he says the most counterintuitive thing you might imagine possible. It's better to go into a house of mourning than a house of feasting, he says. He says, the heart of the wise lives in the house of mourning and the heart of fools lives in the house of mirth. He's saying, if you've got a choice between going to a festival or a funeral, go to the funeral. If you've got a choice whether to don a zoot suit or a dark suit, go black. Because there's more wisdom to be found at a wake than in a wingding. And we hear that and we think, are you nuts? Isn't life out to be celebrated and cherished? Why do we want to let thoughts of our demise encroach upon our celebration of life? And the preacher of Ecclesiastes is saying, exactly. Exactly. He says, this is the way of all mankind, and the living will take it to heart. In other words, you and I ought to come to grips with our demise sooner rather than later because we will only really live until we let the truth of our death sink in. Because I think you would agree, you and I have a problem. And that problem is that most of the time we face our life in an unserious way. That we choose the banal, the superficial, the ridiculous over the substantive, over the glorious, over the beautiful. Kate Bowler, if you've been here before, you've heard me mention that name. She's a professor of religion at Duke, and she's dying. She also has terminal cancer. And she said recently, I'm preparing for death, and everyone else is on Instagram. We wander into a life of unseriousness, because we'd rather ignore the reality of our own demise. What is the main point of those little four verses in Ecclesiastes 7? I think it's this. Embrace the gloom. Embrace the gloom that comes from thinking about thoughts of your death. Don't avoid it like you might want to walk and tiptoe around some drunk homeless guy on the sidewalk. 
Don't ignore it like you try to evade somebody in the supermarket that you think makes you feel uncomfortable. Embrace the gloom. Lean into it. Stare at it. Let it look you in the face. Why would he say that? Is he being a cynic? Is he being morbid? Hardly. We embrace the gloom not for its own sake. This is not, this is not a little Holden Caulfield moment for him from J.D. Salinger's Catcher in the Rye, this little sophomoric ode to meaninglessness. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying embrace the gloom because it's your only way to gladness. You embrace the gloom because it is your pathway to gladness. That's why he says, sorrow is better than laughter, for it is by the sadness of the face that the heart is made glad. Embrace the gloom. It's your only way to gladness. We thought it might have been an argument he might be making for the ridiculousness of being happy or the ridiculousness of being mirthful. Hardly. He's saying, you don't know how to laugh until you know how to cry. You don't know how to be glad until you know what it is to sorrow. You don't know how to aspire to anything worth its weight in aspiring until you know what it is to be disappointed by your aspirations. Embrace the gloom. And what better way to apprentice yourself in the school of gladness than in dressing up for a wake and practicing sorrow. It's counterintuitive, but it's truth because it is by our tears that it's as if something gets washed away from our eyes and at last we see and our vision is transformed. Look, here's the deal. You might be in a long-standing fight with someone But how would your vision of them or that fight change if tomorrow that doctor comes into the examining room and gives you a diagnosis? You may have all manner of ambition that you are just itching to get to today, but how would all of that that you pour your life into change, if at all, if you knew that your prognosis could be put on the calendar? What are you afraid of tonight? What is the anxiety that you bring into this room and how would that anxiety be transformed if death suddenly ceased to be an abstraction and suddenly became an anticipation? What's your version of Jim Valvano's 30 seconds? The thing that he in another day or in another frame might feel so compelled to accommodate and be concerned with and now means absolutely nothing. What's your version of your 30 seconds? When we embrace the gloom, we see the true weight of things. And we at last maybe have an informed gladness, an informed way of seeing ourselves. Folks, in a sense, we are already heeding the words of the preacher of Ecclesiastes. You have already come into a house of mourning. You have come to stare death In the face, by hearing again the death of the Son, you are embracing the gloom by hearing of His, by singing of His, by speaking of His. His gloom, you know it. You've already read it. 
that he was about to enter into intense suffering, but his gloom was even greater than that. His gloom was in knowing that his death was not merely arbitrary, it was absolutely necessary. There was no alternative. His death was necessary because this world is so broken, so enthralled to forces that would grind it into the dust that his death would be necessary to overpower those forces. His death was necessary because we are so broken, so enthralled to things that are unworthy of our worship that his death was necessary that we might be reconciled to the truth and to this Lord. It was necessary. And that madness that he had to die for formed his gloom. But do you hear that in the facing of his gloom, that it was also the path to his gladness. Because in his death, there was no waste. Because it would be by that death that he would both confront and overpower those forces that we cannot see. And it would be by his death that he would both confront what is evil within us and forgive every sin in us that we might approach God the Father as nothing less than a father. That's his gladness. That's our gladness. And if I might narrow one aspect of why you ought to be glad by embracing his gloom, it's this. And I'm getting some help from a theologian of the last century named Karl Barth. He bids us ask the question, what was that primary foundational sin in the garden? It had nothing to do with fruit. It had nothing to do with eating. It was humanity's attempt to make itself its own king and its own judge. And what happened when that first sin was committed? What was humanity's first instinct? To try to prove itself innocent and try to shift the blame onto someone else. That was the first inclination of humanity. Then, oh friends, shall we not agree it is the first inclination of every single person in this room? That when you are caught... Your first inclination is to deprive, prove your innocence or to shift the blame onto someone else. Do you know why embracing the gloom is our gladness? Because when Jesus comes to die, his cross tells us this. You can try to prove your innocence till you're blue in the face, but none of us are innocent. And where it is might be your instinct to want to shift the blame to somebody else, There may be some fruit born of that, but it's not really a solution to your condition. When we embrace the gloom of knowing that we will never be able to prove ourselves innocent and that there is nobody that we can shift the blame on to account for what is regrettable in us, it's only then that we might be gladdened by the fact that his cross covers it all. And for that, we give him thanks. It took Jim Valvano to have a dance with his death to see all things new. And you and I will see all things new in even greater way by staring at the death of the sun. Which begs the question, how do we do that? You might have caught it as you entered this room, but there was an excerpt from a poem by a poet named Christian Wyman whom I've shared with this body before. 
And the excerpt of that poem, inspired by him watching his grandfather die, was this line. I do not know how to grow closer to God except by standing where the world is ending for one man. How will you grow closer to God? How will you embrace the gloom that it might be your only path to gladness? You will need to come and stand where the world was ending for one man. Where it was ending for a man who set a table. A table of his gloom that was also his gladness. Brothers and sisters and welcome guests, taste and see that despite all, the Lord is good.